Welcome to No Baller. I am Chris Rawl. It is Friday, June 4th. On today's show, a discussion of the lost performances of the playoffs. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be entertaining. Before we get there, as I've been saying this whole week, we now have an app. You can find it on anything. iOS, Android, Amazon, Roku, go down the list. Search for the Beehive TV. Download it. You can get this show in audio, in video. You'll get a notification when we are up and running uh, and all those good things. So download that. If you have any sports fans in your life that you think would enjoy this show as well, get them to do the same. Now, we will start the show how we always start the show, with a gambling tidbit as why gambling should be legal in Utah. Last night, the Lakers played the Suns in game six. The Lakers trailed the series 3-2. And it was a backs-against-the-wall type scenario. So me, the, the gambling genius, I go in and I say, you know what? I have a, a gut feeling, you know, an emotional hunch. The Lakers, their backs are against the wall. They won the championship last year. There's no way that they can't come out in this first half and give everything they got. The whole the proverbial kitchen sink game, just toss it out there. And I know this to be true. You know, I'm just like, it's going to happen this is the easiest bet I'm ever going to make. I'm going to make some money. I'm going to pat myself on the back. I'm going to come on tomorrow's No Baller Show. I'm going to talk about how big of a genius I am because that's how I felt last night. So I bet them. Minus a half point. All they had to do was win in the first half. And, and I, you know, win my bet. I feel great about life. So I settle down and I go, this is going to happen. Uh, I'm getting ready to cash. And the first quarter ends and the Lakers are down by 22 points. And it was, uh, it was an unfortunate realization for me. Anthony Davis, he goes down five minutes into the game. Uh, the Lakers were just lethargic. The Phoenix Suns were not. They sensed blood in the water, Devin Booker especially. And they came out and they feasted. So we get to halftime. I lose my bet by six miles. And I'm sitting there thinking about life and love and the pursuit of happiness and how all of those things tie into gambling. And I get a great reminder as to why gambling should be legal in Utah. Because we all need the humility that comes from being reminded constantly that we are all just dumbasses. And now, a word from our sponsor. With your and you always Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. It is very easy to understand and contextualize when someone balls out in a win. Uh, I mentioned Suns Lakers at the top of the show. And you don't need to understand anything about basketball to know that Devin Booker was out of his mind in that game. He finishes with 47 points, 11 rebounds. He goes 15 for 22 from the field. He goes 8 for 10 from three-point land. He goes 9 for 9 from the free throw line. Truly, truly an incredible performance. And you don't need to know anything about basketball to go and watch last night's game and say, that dude, who is that guy? He balled out, right? And if you understand more about basketball, then you're better able to contextualize a performance like Devin Booker's. Uh, because it enriches the experience from having watched a player for a long course of time, you know, rather than just seeing this individual thing and going, that was really good. You understand what it means to a player like Devin Booker, a player who's never been in the playoffs, who up until last night, his defining 
moment, in my opinion, would be his 70-point game against the Boston Celtics in the regular season, when he was truly out of his mind and just went on a scoring binge that you see once every 10 years or so. And the Suns lost because the Suns are, were not good. And the famous moment coming out of the game is Devin Booker in the locker room after the game holding up a photograph or holding up a piece of paper that says 70 on it and smiling and his teammates are around him and everybody piled on and made fun of them. They go, look at these clowns, look at that clown. Uh, it, celebrating 70 points in a loss, that doesn't even matter. You, you can't affect the game, you don't know how to win. You guys are just bad, right? That was the narrative. And that was one of the main things we thought about when we thought about Devin Booker's career because up until this year, the Suns had always been bad. And Devin Booker had been kind of a, a lone star shining on that team, but because his team always lost, we go, well, I'm not sure if that guy contributes to winning. Now, last year, because we understand all of this from the past, we're able to contextualize what a game like last night means. Uh, and we have a new moment for Devin Booker that he's going to hang his hat on moving forward. His first playoff against the defending champions, this really tough, grinded-out series. They go into game six on the road when they have a chance to close it out. And a lot of people... Uh, think that the Lakers are going to win and they're going to force a game seven. And he comes out and he just torches the entire place to the ground. That's what we're going to think of when we think of Devin Booker now. Uh, it's the same thing that went into last night's Nuggets-Blazers game six, where the Nuggets have a chance to close out the series. And they end up winning that game by 11 points. And Nikola Jokic, cream rises to the top. Uh, he finishes with 36 points, eight rebounds, six assists. He does all those just ugly yet pretty Nikola Jokic things that, that he's now known for, that he's going to win the MVP because of. Just high-level passing, unstoppable scoring, rebound, just this cerebral player who understands what is going on on the basketball court and can dictate everything just by virtue of his scoring and his passing. You don't need to know anything about basketball to watch Jokic last night and say, that dude balled. You know, he closes out the Blazers on the road in game six. And it's easy to just see that last night. And if you've watched more of Nikola Jokic's career, it's a, a richer experience because you see another notch in the belt of a dude who's turned into one of the very best playoff, performance, playoff performers in basketball, who is truly unstoppable on the offensive end in a way that very few big men in the past have been, uh, you know, his... The person who comes to mind for me, they're very different players, but just that same unstoppable force in the playoffs that doesn't really match up with their body size and style uh, is Dirk Nowitzki, you know? And Jokic is continually bringing it in the playoffs every single year that he's been there. And this is just another notch that we go, yeah, Jokic, how do you really, how do you get inside uh, that guy's game in the playoffs? How do you stop him? It seems like uh, too much of a task. So that's the, the, the winning side, the side that's really easy to comprehend and the side that if you follow the sport or the player or the team more closely, it's really easy to contextualize and to make sense of these performances. Then we go to the opposite side and what today's episode is about, the lost performances of the playoffs. These really incredible individual efforts that ultimately end in a loss for the team. Uh, and it's my goal in life to get sports fans and casual fans to understand that a player's performance 
is always separate from whether or not his team wins or loses. It's never as simple as this player performance stamped in binary terms. Did your team win or lose? Then you were good or you were bad. Uh, something I continually talk about on No Baller and something I'm super aware of and I really love discussing with other sports fans because I think we're getting somewhat smarter and more able to comprehend that a player can ball out in a loss or a player can play poorly in a win, but we still, we have room to grow in that area. So we only need to rewind two nights ago, actually now three nights ago, uh, because this is the morning, but we go back to game five of Denver Nuggets, Portland Trailblazers, 2-2 two -two series, enormous game five being played on Denver's home floor. Denver wins a thriller. 147-140 in two overtimes. And the game was truly incredible. But the number one thing that I couldn't stop thinking about in the game was the performance of Damian Lillard, whose team actually lost. This comes from Jason Quick of The Athletic after this Game 5 performance. Michael Malone called him superhuman. CJ McCollum said he was godlike. And Terry Stott said it was the best playoff performance he had ever seen. And none of it mattered to Damian Lillard. The Trailblazers guard had just scored a franchise record 55 points in a playoff game, made an NBA record 12 three pointers, dished 10 assists to make him the first to have 55 and 10 in the playoffs, and he made clutch shots that sent the game into two different overtimes. End quote. To give this game further context, Portland is down 54-32 at one point in the second quarter. It looks like it's going to be a runaway. I'm getting ready to kind of put the game on ice. I'm thinking, should I live bet in the second half so this game is more entertaining because it looks like it's just going to be a stinker. And Portland kind of rises from the ashes, turns it into a game very quickly. So now we have this back and forth through the third quarter, through the fourth quarter, into overtime, into another overtime. And while this back and forth is occurring we are seeing Dame Lillard turn in truly one of the most incredible playoff performances that I've ever watched. Terry Stotts, his coach, says that's the best I've ever seen a player play in the playoffs. Lillard ends up scoring or assisting on 80 points, tied for an NBA playoff record. Mm, he's 6-for-8 in both overtimes, while his teammates go 1-for-14 in that time frame. If you watch the game, his stretch at the end of the first overtime... Portland falls down by nine with under two minutes to go. And again, it just seems like the game is going to be over. You don't really need to worry about it. That stretch in the last minute and 45 seconds of the first overtime is about as scintillating a basketball as you can ever possibly find. It was Dame Lillard at his apex. The dude who can get to the rim if he wants because everybody has to guard him on the three-point line. And then when he truly needs a three and he knows that you're still squatting on that, he goes, I don't care because I can shake and bake and dance in place. And even if you are up and underneath me and inside my shorts, I still am going to hit this shot. And so he's banging home these threes at the end of the first overtime. And he hits the first one. You go, all right, well, the Nuggets are still going to win. And then he hits another and you go, I mean, what's going on? You can't possibly continually make these. And then they're down three. And he hits probably the hardest three yet to send it to a second overtime. And watching it was just an incredible experience. It's almost an out-of-body experience watching it. I can't imagine what it was like being there on the floor, being the person who's doing it. Lillard, alongside Curry, those are the only two people who 
exist in the NBA, in my opinion, right now, that can get into such a state of alternate being on the floor where when they get as hot as they can get, they can shoot any shot, regardless of where it is on the floor, regardless of how many defenders are draped on them, and regardless of whether or not the other team knows it's coming or not. And when the ball is leaving their hands, you're going, I can't believe this is going in. And you know it for a fact. You truly do know it. And that was the last stretch of the first overtime. That was actually large stretches of this entire game. It was Dame Lillard at his absolute finest form. So this leads us into another quote from Kirk Goldsberry of ESPN to further contextualize this performance. Only five players, Clay Thompson, Stephen Curry, Zach Levine, Danielle Marshall, and Kobe Bryant, have ever made at least 12 three-pointers in a regular season game. So sinking 12 in a playoff game is a remarkable feat on its own. Lillard's performance gets more absurd when we consider just how tough his attempts were. These were not open catch-and-shoot tries. When Thompson set the previous playoff record with his epic Game 6 performance against the Thunder in 2016, all 11 of his three-pointers were assisted. He dribbled into just two of those 11 makes. That's not what we saw last night. Only three of Lillard's 12 makes last night involved an assist, and he dribbled into 11 of his 12 triples. Lillard self-created almost all of his looks off the bounce. According to Second Spectrum, his average shot distance on those 12 made threes was 27.65 feet. Based on the estimated shot difficulty of Lillard's 17 attempts, the average NBA player would have connected on 30%, giving him five three-pointers. Lillard shot 71%. In classic Lillard fashion, two of his last four makes were from beyond 31 feet. End quote. I'll steal a word from Kirk. Uh, truly an absurd performance. <laughs> absurd in the most positive sense you could ever imagine. Coming from a player that regularly puts up absurd performances, especially when it comes to shooting and shooting from distance. Part of what made Curry's season this year so special, he continually did these absurd things and kept one-upping them in a career that was already absurd. Lillard did the same thing a couple nights ago on the biggest possible stage. Playoffs, game five, 2-2 two -two series, your team needs you, shots are not falling for those around you. Can you step up and bang home a bunch of threes that probability says you have a slight chance of making? Wow, okay, here you go. You're shooting over double of what an NBA player would shoot based upon the difficulty and proximity of these shots. And the Blazers lose. Uh, this disconnect there that occurs, that really occurs over the course of time and the more time goes on and we tend to forget individual performances unless they are tied into a win. This disconnect between an individual player, how they performed, and the outcome of the game for their team, a win or a loss. Uh, the disconnect between how much we as sports fans believe that one individual player can control the outcome of a team sport. This is a really fascinating topic of discussion when it comes to this game and actually the game prior. Lillard plays the game of his life in game five. Best playoff performance ever according to Terry Stotts. And Portland loses. 
you rewind one game earlier. Portland is down 2-1 in the series. They're playing game four at home, and they smash Denver. They win by 20 points. What's strange about that game is Damian Lillard scores 10 points in that game on 1-for-10 shooting. And other people on the roster have to step up, and they do. Norm Powell plays a great game. Yusuf Nurkic plays a great game. C.J. McCollum does all the C.J. McCollum things. And the rest of the roster steps up when Lillard doesn't necessarily. And they carry the day, and they carry Portland to a win. That's another thing that will always get lost in the shuffle, because... One of the main takeaways coming out of Game 5 and coming out of last night, the Blazers losing this series, is something that is rooted a lot in truth. That Portland is wasting all-time performances from an all-time player. A dude who truly you could win a championship with. And they've never really come close. And at no point have they ever entered the playoffs. And I have looked at that team and said, this team can win the championship. I've not thought that one time in Lillard's career in Portland. And that's not a knock on Dame Lillard. That's a knock on the team that they have built around him continually and not been able to accentuate his talents and cover up his weaknesses in a way that other championship contenders do with their very best player. And yet even on a roster like that, you can still have games like game four where, yeah, I don't think that they're a championship level roster, but in a really high leverage playoff game, Dame Lillard scores 10 points and shoots one for 10. And those guys can still step up and win the game. It's a very interesting discussion when it goes into winning, losing, uh, roster construction around a star, individual performances, and how much they affect whether or not a team wins or team loses. These games four and five, and even into six last night, they're very interesting food for thought when it comes to comprehending this idea and then deciding how you feel about it uh, in the long term. So let's read another quote from Kirk Goldsberry of ESPN. To further contextualize Dame Lillard as a player that's responsible for wins or losses. Lillard was by far the best player in clutch time, defined by the NBA as a game within five points in the final five minutes in the league this season. He not only led the NBA in clutch scoring, putting up 162 points, but was among the league's top 25 most active clutch time shooters this season. He was also the most efficient, with an absurd true shooting percentage of 71.6. How good is that? Over the past 25 seasons, there have been more than 400 instances of a player attempting 75 clutch time shots in a season. Lillard is the only one of those 400 plus players to post a true shooting percentage better than 70%, end quote. So Lillard is doing everything in his power to try and help his team win throughout the course of the game. And really, as these stats are showing from Kurt Goldsberry, in what we consider to be the most important moments of the game, crunch time, when the game is close and you got to manufacture buckets against defenses that are locked in in half-court sets. Lillard did that this past season at a rate that we haven't seen over the last quarter century. That's about the definition of a winning player, you know, a dude who is, he contributes to your team's ability to win. Simultaneous to this, the Blazers are ultimately not winning. Uh, and that's a whole separate discussion. It's about that roster construction. It's about what are they doing to help him? Uh, it's about how much can one individual player, even a dude who is the most clutch player in basketball, 
how much can he truly dictate the outcome of a game for a team that doesn't necessarily have the same level of talent as teams that I would consider to be true championship contenders. Dame Lillard is 30 years old. He just completed his ninth NBA season. And he's turning into a very interesting case study within the NBA for this particular idea. Uh, player, their individual performance, and the team side of it, the wins and the losses, and how much we hold each side accountable for those things. Because Lillard has been a clutch player throughout his career. He's been the most clutch player over the, the recent past. Uh, historic, actually, in that sense. Absurd to steal a, the word from Goldsberry that he keeps using. Uh, he's ended two different series with walk-off threes, two of the most iconic basketball moments of the last decade. Is him canning that three in game six against uh, the Houston Rockets when he peels off the screen and drills it at the top of the key and Portland's crowd just goes ballistic. Dwight Howard's walking off sadly and his wave goodbye to Oklahoma City where he cans it over Paul George and Paul George is saying after the game, I played great defense. And, and he did. But that's just Dame. That's Dame time. Uh, that's where that nickname comes into play. It's all these clutch shooting performances and ability to do that continually over and over and over. And I think people really understand this with Dame. Uh, this guy balls. Uh, he's a championship level player and he has not come close to a championship because of this situation. And I think most NBA fans are able to separate his performance from the ultimate outcome of the game, whether or not his team wins or loses. And it makes me hopeful, and I hope that this continues into the future because we're getting further into his career and how public perception usually works is the longer time goes on, even if a player is like Dame Lillard, as clutch as can be, continually playing at the highest level and doing everything in their power to win and then falling short, the past history of sports shows us that fans sooner or later turn against a player like that. And I hope that doesn't happen with Lillard because, again, I think he's a championship player, even if he never wins a championship. Makes me a little bit nervous because we've seen a similar player, uh, one that I've talked about on this show uh, about a month ago, especially when I was talking about Lillard, who had a, a public narrative cycle that kind of reached a peak, and it's Chris Paul, and then has slowly been going downhill as his season or as his career has gone on and the seasons have piled up because he hasn't won a championship. Chris Paul, a dude who has always been clutched throughout his career, the point god dude who just knows how to play basketball and knows how to ball continually in every game and brings the best out of his team and is, again, one of the most clutch players within these situations that the NBA defines uh, within five points in the final five minutes of the game. He's been that his entire career. Uh, and yet if you pulled most fans with Chris Paul, they would say, ah, there might be something lacking. Can you win with uh, that small of a player? He's injured sometimes. Is that is some of that on him, or is that just random injury luck? Uh, he's had some notice, noticeable gaffes within the playoffs, uh, a few of them because you have to have those if you've played in the playoffs for over a decade. LeBron has those. Jordan has those. Go down the list of all the people who've won. You have to have those. Uh, but we'll really razor, razor in on those and hone in on those if you haven't won, and we'll hold those against you greatly. So Dame is now a kind of a case study moving forward. Do we continue to see the truth of Dame Lillard? That this guy balls, that he's one of the most clutch players, that he is one of the very best players in the NBA, but his team is losing because 
they're not necessarily matching that effort? Or do, at some point, we hold his team's lack of success against him? I hope it's the first one. I don't know. It's something to monitor as the years go on. I'm going to read one more quote from Kirk Goldsberry of ESPN. Ultimately, basketball is a team game, and Lillard's teammates couldn't get it done. If there's a blemish on this incredible performance, it's the fact that Lillard didn't take any shots in the game's final three minutes and 45 seconds, and his teammates couldn't do anything. Lillard was 6 for 8 in the two overtime periods and had 17 of Portland's 19 points in the extra frames. His teammates combined to shoot a dreadful 1 of 14. Even the greatest players in the game need help. But that help never came for Lillard in Game 5, and ultimately, that's what cost Portland. End quote. Even the greatest players in the game need help. Constant theme of no baller. Constant thought process that I continually apply to the way that I watch sports. Uh, and one that really bubbles up to the top as I'm watching game five and it's ending. And even as the series is ending last night. A player like Lillard, he's he needs help. Doesn't matter how good you are. Even the greatest players in the game need help. I think back just through the course of playoff history, and there's so many of these lost performances that sometimes are held against a player and other times are just kind of forgotten because they've had other winning moments and we don't really need to concentrate on these losses because we've seen this player win at the highest level. One of the ones that always comes to mind for me is 2018 Finals Game 1. Uh, LeBron James, my favorite player, who played one of the very best offensive basketball games I've ever watched. He scores 51 points, 8 rebounds, 8 assists. He goes 19 for 32 from the field. He plays 48 minutes that night. Against the best basketball team I've ever watched, the Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green Warriors. And LeBron was a man on an island in that game and in that series. They ended up getting swept. They had nowhere near the talent nor the ability to play with the Warriors. Everybody knew that going in. Everybody knew that going out. Game one, though, was just one of those special games that LeBron can put forth where he's on an island. And despite everything I know about this series, that Cleveland literally could not win it. Uh, He's canning threes from distance. He's getting to the rim. He's just saying, I'm doing everything in my power to win this game. And he puts Cleveland in position to win it. Uh, and George Hill misses a free throw right at the end of regulation. There's the famous meme of J.R. Smith grabbing the rebound, running in the opposite direction because he thinks that his team has the lead when in actuality they're tied. LeBron's pointing the other way. Became a very funny moment for the vast majority of the world and sports fans. And, and it is because, I mean, how could you drop something that's that absurd and that just bozo style of a scenario? But it also, every time I see the picture, I always get a little, there's that little twinge because I go, damn, I can't believe that LeBron played like that and Cleveland still lost one of those lost performances of the playoffs. Uh, if we're thinking about Cavs and Warriors, I think about another one. My favorite game of all time is the 2016 Finals Game 7. I talk about it constantly in this show. But there's something within that game that is just really never talked about. And it's Draymond Green's performance. 
because that night was about as good as you're ever going to get from Draymond Green. He plays 47 minutes. He has 32 points. He has 15 rebounds, nine assists, two steals. He goes six for eight from three-point land. And it was Draymond Green at his apex, that swaggering version of Draymond that's screaming and strutting and stomping and playing defense as good as anybody can play defense and doing the thing that he doesn't normally do well at the highest level, go six for eight from three-point land, and just being that soulful, emotional leader that the Warriors always look to. The dude who said, hey, when push comes to shove, I know Steph's our best player. Uh, I know Thompson, he's going to bomb out from three-point land, but I am the emotional beating heart of this team, and I'm the one who brings the intensity and the focus and the drive, and I'll scream at all my teammates, and I'll demand the very best of them. That was Draymond in that game. And what we remember from that game is the block and Kyrie's three and Kevin Love dancing around in place as he's trying to guard Steph Curry and doing as good a job as, Ste as Kevin Love can do as Curry bricks a three that would have tied it and the rest is history. Cleveland wins a championship for the first time in 50 years. LeBron's crying, all that stuff. That's what we remember from the game because Cleveland won. And what we remember from Draymond's career is it's other stuff because he also has won at the highest level, just like LeBron has. And so rather than remembering a performance like this, it's easier to remember the performances that come in a win. Uh, but these are all things that kind of weave into the tapestry of a player's career and of a team's story that I love, that I think are really cool, and that a lot of times kind of get lost in the shuffle because they occurred in a loss. Uh, these lost performances of the playoffs. Dame Lillard in game five. You know, he joins the long, incredible list. I could go on for days and days about all the things that I remember in the NBA playoffs, NHL, NFL, uh, just these incredible performances that occurred in a loss and that kind of get forgotten about as time goes on relative to what we remember about the winning team and the winning players. Uh, to wrap up this show, I'm going to transition out of basketball and I'm going to jump into the world of golf because I've been thinking a lot about Phil Mickelson lately because of his PGA Championship win. Uh, oldest major winner ever, 50 years old. Really cool story. I did an entire show about it that uh, really touched upon that emotional and spiritual side of golf that I really love and think is cool about the sport. And Phil has won at the highest level. He's won a bunch of majors. Uh, he has the great first major win at the Masters where he does the two-inch vertical jump in the air to celebrate his putt going out on 18. Really cool stuff. Uh, he's won other majors. He just put together probably the most memorable performance of his career, in my opinion, the 50-year-old winning at a bomber's paradise out in the eastern coast of the United States. Uh, just an all-time golfer, you know? And... One of the things that I remember most vividly about his career is one of these lost performances. It's the 2016 Open Championship at Royal Troon. Uh, going into the final day, it was essentially a one-versus-one one matchup. Henrik Stenson versus Phil Mickelson. They were just out in front of everybody. And Stenson leads by one shot going into the final round. Set the stage for really, truly one of the most memorable days of golf that I've watched. Stenson shoots a 63 in that final round. Mickelson shoots a 65. They're just exchanging birdie after birdie, just the highest level of golf you'll ever watch coming forth that day from those two players. Stenson wins the tournament now by three shots. He bests Phil by two shots on the final day. He was leading by a stroke going in. He's there kissing the jug. 
And Stenson deserves a lot of accolades because he put together one of the greatest performances we've ever watched in a major. He finishes the tournament at 20 under. Beats Phil by three shots. Phil's there at 17 under. And then you go down the leaderboard and you go, who's in third? And it's JB Holmes at six under par. 14 shots clear of the leader, 11 shots clear of Phil Mickelson in second place. <laughs> and you look at a performance like that and you say, that is one of the ultimate wrong place, wrong time efforts from Phil Mickelson. A person who relative to the field pieced together a historic effort. He's 11 shots clear of the next best person. And he just had the bad luck of running into a person who put together slightly more historic performance. Two dudes in the same tournament piecing together the greatest four-day stretch of golf that you could possibly expect from a professional golfer. They did it at the same time. One of those people had to lose. It was Phil Mickelson. And these are the lost performances that come into play. And I always think about them for players that have won and really for players that have lost continually and have never won at the ultimate level. Because sooner or later, those performances will be held against them. In Phil's, clay, in Phil's case, they're just kind of pushed to the side in a way that I don't love. Because for me, that performance from Mickelson during that tournament in that day, it really truly is about as impressive as anything he's pieced together. He lost, but in the history of the Open Championship and relative to the field, when you really factor that in, it's about as good of golf as you can play. You know, if you went and talked to Phil, I'll bet he would say the same thing. Yeah, that's about as good of a tournament as I'm going to put together. Stenson just did the same thing. Wrong place, wrong time, whatever. Other tournaments that I've won, I probably played not as good of golf, especially relative to the field, but I won because that's just how things were flowing that day. Uh, all of this stuff, this entire discussion, uh, and these memories that are being created in present day over the last few days and, and that stretch back into time, LeBron's game one, Draymond game seven, Phil Mickelson in the Open Championship. It's all a continual reminder and uh, what this entire show is about. That a loss is not always an indicator that an individual played poorly. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.